Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. All right, well, good morning. I uh, am grateful for a buffer video so I can collect myself after singing the song that we sang a moment ago. Hard not to sing that song and just pour out everything that you have into it, uh, recognizing the God that we're singing to, the one who is present with us. What an incredible thing. And so, uh, hey, I want to, he's not here today. I want to thank Socrates for bringing the word last week. If you were here, he'll watch this at some point. Would you express your thanks for Socrates bringing the word on Sunday? Um, I, I, was, I was out, I was away, I was with my family, I was in the mountains, and I don't mind telling you that. Um, and uh, what a great thing to have a team of people that can just that step in and, uh, and the body of Christ just continues to be what it is. If we're not dependent on a part, we're not dependent on a role or a person, uh, we recognize the Spirit of God is moving through all of the parts uh, as people use their gifts and serve. And many of you do that, we thank you for it. Um, and I want to thank uh, Jarian and Ashley for leading us in Socrates' place on the worship team. Would you thank them for leading us in that experience? <clears throat> you know, we're here this morning, but apparently uh, there's kind of a big deal going on tonight. There's an Usher concert in Las Vegas that, um, that rumors are Taylor Swift is going to be there too. And so... Uh, but some of you are, are going to be paying more attention to the football game uh, that's going to be breaking out there. Let me ask you this, if you know what is and what's what, uh, how many of you will be cheering for the Chiefs tonight? Let me just hear you. Okay, all right. Uh, how many of you the 49ers? A little, a little more rowdy, all right. And how many of you are cheering for Usher? <laughs> Can I say that to a pastor? I don't know. Um, it's going to be fun. I, I'll, uh, I'll go out on a limb here and say that I believe with deep conviction that what we are about to take place and what we've already been doing for the last 20 or 25 minutes is of greater significance than what will happen tonight in Las Vegas. Be- because as enjoyable as a football game can be, as fun as it is to relive the songs of the 90s and early 2000s that some of us grew up on, we worship a God who was, who is, who is to come. And we get the opportunity throughout our week in times of meditation and prayer and scripture reading and discipleship, but especially on Sunday mornings, to gather and affirm together the faith that we share, faith that sometimes comes into Sunday a little tattered, a little frayed. But on Sunday, we link arms and we worship the God who is, the one who redeemed us, the one who created us and saved us. And we say together, you are holy. You alone are worthy. You are the great I am. I'm so thankful for a church that I just couldn't wait to come home to. As much as I love being away, I love coming back to the work that God has called us to here. And so this week and over the next several weeks, we're going to be going through this new series that we're calling the seven I am sayings of Jesus. These are going to be seven unique statements that when accepted by faith, give us great confidence that we are both protected and provided for by the loving presence and activity of Jesus in our lives. All seven of these statements as we go through one per week, all seven are are coming out of the gospel of John. 
I want you to know that John was one of the 12 disciples. Some of you know that vernacular. He was actually one of the three closest to Jesus, invited into rooms where some of the others were not invited in. And in fact, of the 12 men who most, clo- uh, most closely followed Jesus, he's the only one that stayed with Jesus through the crucifixion. Several women did, but the men all chickened out except for John. And so John writes his gospel account of the life of Jesus with a unique perspective. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, start at a place that might seem a little more common. They start with the birth of Jesus. If you're writing the biography of a human being, oftentimes the birth is the place to start. But John has a unique goal in mind. John wants to establish Jesus not only as a great teacher, not only as the Messiah and the Savior, but as the very Son of God come to live among us. He tells us as much at the end of the gospel account, John chapter 20. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is about identity. By the way, it is always about identity. The the satanic assault that we see playing out on humanity is and has always been to question our identity as image bearers made in the image of God, male and female, to steward the earth and exercise loving dominion over it. Jesus himself, when he showed up on earth, was constantly barraged by the satanic question of, Are you really the Messiah? Some of you might remember the desert temptations. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself from the temple. Even at his crucifixion, Jesus is being peppered with questions. If you really are the Son of God, come down from the cross. The enemy of our souls, we believe a real being created by God, fallen from grace, Lucifer or the devil or Satan, that his objective, number one, is to cause followers of Jesus to question whether they truly are who God says that they are. He's been doing it for generations. He's doing it with special effectiveness in our own. People lost in this ocean of identity. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't don't know where I'm going in the world. This is not a new thing, but something we're seeing at new levels. Let me ask you a question, who has enough age or let's say experience in the room to remember this game show that I'm going to put up behind me? You remember what this was called? Say it out. Yeah, it's actually written back there, it's just the letters are a little weird. Uh, You might remember the more modern adaptation, its most recent iteration to tell the truth. Uh, And basically, if you're not familiar with this game show, the premise is pretty simple. Three individuals claim the same identity, and obviously only one of them is telling the truth. Uh, Across the room from them is a panel of celebrity judges. Their job is to ask questions in the hope of ascertaining the person's true identity. Which of the three truly is the person they claim to be? Uh, The more recent version of the show, identities included Taylor Swift's high school boyfriend, uh, the original voice of Siri, and the inventor of the selfie stick. Each episode, those celebrity judges are trying to figure out which of the three is, knowing that two of them are not. 
And what I want to tell you this morning is that when Jesus showed up in Israel in the first century, there was kind of a real-life version of to tell the truth playing out in that generation. We know from the book of Acts that multiple men had risen up claiming to be the Messiah. They'd even gotten a band of people to follow them, only to lead them into deserts of their own demise, proving that they were not, in fact, who they claimed to be. And like in the game show, there were some celebrity judges standing in the room who saw it as their job to determine who the Messiah truly was or wasn't. These were called Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. These Pharisees or celebrity judges saw themselves as the gatekeepers of messianic identity. Interestingly enough, these were the men with whom Jesus had his most frequent and most intense clashes. They were the chief antagonists to the life and ministry of Jesus. They called him names like insane and demon-possessed, and Jesus responded calling them things like hypocrites, snakes, and whitewashed tombs. The central issue that played out was this question, is Jesus really the Messiah sent by God? They were, they were constantly attacking this central identity. It is always about identity. And so while I could go to probably a dozen different passages to show a clash between Jesus and the Pharisees, today I want to hone in on one in particular, John chapter 8, and I want to read for you, I'm going to read two passages, but I'm going to begin with just one, verses 12 through 20. Here's what it says. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears witness about myself. The Father who sent me bears witness about me as well. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You see it, right? This, this jockeying back and forth. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. They say, your testimony is not true. They say, where is your father? Jesus says, you don't know me or my father. And we could risk thinking that this is like a, a child, childish spat, like something you see on the playground, name calling. There's something very different going on. I love the graciousness of God to reveal in no uncertain terms that sometimes those who consider themselves the gatekeepers of religion, those who paint a picture of God as rigid and legalistic and, and angry all the time, are actually not telling us the truth about who God is. And the constant record of Jesus going toe-to-toe -to -toe with these men shows us that the truth about God is what Jesus revealed, that he is a God of love and mercy and compassion, one who is holy, yes, but who extends nail-pierced hands to any who would come to him, even little children and those far from God. 
the writer of Hebrews says that in Jesus is the exact representation of the person of God. Some of my favorite movies are, are movies that time lapse from kind of the present to the past or jump ahead to the future. There are many movies like that, but as a 90s and early 2000s kid, I vividly remember the scenes from The Prestige, from Fight Club, from Shawshank Redemption, where there's a kind of a time lapse or a flash forward. And what I want to do is I want to pin John chapter 8, the passage we've been looking at together, and I want to go backward in time to Exodus chapter 3, Old Testament, second book of the Bible. And I'm going to turn there, and I want to show you an interesting encounter between a man named Moses and the burning bush that appeared to him as he was out in the fields. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, an encounter, a conversation between Moses and God, and it goes like this. He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, oh, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I want you to notice Moses' question in verse 13. Moses asks the question, what is your name? In other words, what is your identity? Remember, it's always about identity. Who are you, God? And the voice responds, verse 14, I am who I am. That's a weird way to answer the question because the I am was not a name. The I am was rather the, the, the meaning in Hebrew to be or something that is. It was a very common word, Yahweh. And yet when applied to God, it teaches us some very specific things about who God is when he says, Yahweh, I am. So I want to take a few minutes, maybe 10 or 15, to look at three phenomenal truths that we can ascertain from these three simple letters, I-A-M, I am. What does that mean about the identity of God? Number one, it means that God is. You did not need a seminary degree to put that together. When someone says, I am, they're telling you that they are. But the reason we have to grapple with this is because there are many people in our world and throughout history who have not believed that God is. They've rejected the idea that God is a real existent being. In, in philosophy classes, in uh, undergraduate and postgraduate studies, there's this theological term called isness, if you can believe it. Isness, I-S-ness. This is what they talk about when they talk about God. The fact that he is. He is a being who has always existed, will always exist, and exists here and now. And while that may seem an obvious truth to unpack, you need to know that before we can embrace all that God is, we have to first recognize that he is. The God who is the light of the world, the door, the way, the truth, and the life. We have to first recognize that God is, and the I am makes that statement very clear. Now, the way that I know myself is largely through the context of other people. It's through relationships. It's true for you as well. Uh, when applied to myself, I can tell you that I'm the son of David and Pam Ogden. I have six brothers and sisters, 
And we spent a week together in a cabin in Gatlinburg this past week with our 386 children. And I'm kidding, it's only 23. <laughs> and, and I know myself largely through relationship. When I got married at the age of 28 to Nikki and we began to have children, Addison, Olivia, and Jonah, much of my understanding, or I might say my identity, is formed by who I'm in relationship with. But if I was no longer to be in relationship with those people, or if I wasn't aware that the relationships existed, I would not cease to be. However, my identity might become malformed. Does that make sense? I I know who I am largely because of the people I'm in context with, and mostly because of the God who created me. So what we're seeing playing out in the world today with these massive questions of identity and I don't even know if I'm this or that or who I am or what I'm meant to do are largely the untethering of our culture from the one who is, the God who is, which has had a ripple effect in broken homes, broken relationships, broken lives. And the remedy is to recognize that above us, with us, among us is one who is, the God, the I am. The more disconnected people become from that reality, the more disconnected they become from each other. So number two, not only God is, but God is one. Notice that God does not introduce himself as we are. He says, I am. There's a singularity to the nature of God. Uh, Now Egypt, Britannica says, Egypt had one of the largest and most complex pantheons of God of any civilization in the ancient world. Interesting that it would be Egypt where the Israelite people are held captive. So God shows up to Moses and says, I am, and Moses is most likely thinking, which of the gods are you? Uh, Which of the pantheon of Egyptian gods are you uh, Isis? Are you Osiris? Are you Ra? Are you Oman? In other words, when, when Moses asks the question, if I come to you and the people ask who you are, what do I say? He's basically saying, which of the many gods of Egypt are you? When God says, I am, it's a subtle way of saying, Moses, I'm the only one who is. I am not a god among gods. I am that I am. Tell, me that the, tell them that the only God who is has sent me to you. It's a rebuke of the Egyptian view of polytheism. That God is among the gods and one God of rain and one God of war and one God of reproduction. And God says, no, no, no. There is only one God. There is only one I am. Now this concept of God as a singular being, the oneness of God, this became kind of the the trademark for the Hebrew people. Uh, They had circumcision already at that time. They would later uh, receive the law on Mount Sinai. But the, the, the overarching truth, the thing that singularly differentiated the Israelite people among all, all other religions of the day was that they had a monotheistic view of God. They understood God not only to be, God is, but they understood him as a singular being, God who is one. And so when the law came from God through Moses, one of the paramount verses in it is this, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The singular I am, that is who God is. 
Now, interesting for our conversation today is that the Pharisees, those religious leaders that opposed Jesus, they saw themselves primarily as the gatekeepers of that truth. Cared about circumcision, they cared about the law, they cared about Sabbath, cleansing rituals. But the most audacious thing somebody could say, the most blasphemous thing somebody could do would be to come claiming equality with God himself. They saw themselves as the guardians. Number three, God is, God is one, and God is present. If the oneness of God was a rebuke to the uh, Egyptians, the presence of God was a message of hope for the Israelites. These individuals, this collective nation of people had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, meaning that no one among them had a great-grandfather's great-grandfather's great-grandfather who knew anything of freedom. So God for them was, yes, a God who showed up back then. It would not have been surprising for God to show up as the I was. They would say, yes, you were the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you haven't been anywhere in 400 years. Or for God to say, I will be, meaning when we get you out of Egypt, when we get you into the promised land, then I will be your God. But God doesn't say I was, and God doesn't say I will be. God says, I am. Meaning right here in their captivity, right here in their anguish, right here in their generational enslavement, God showed up and said, I am here present with you. I don't know all of the situations in our church, I know several, but it may be that you're going through something right now and the presence of God is a great concept or idea, but you go, I don't know how God could be present in this circumstance in the loss of a loved one, in the diagnosis of uh, an illness or in the misdiagnosis or the uncertainty of not receiving a diagnosis, in the the crash of an economy or the, the job loss or whatever it might be, I hope you take great hope that the one who appeared to Moses and said, I am, appears to you and says, I still am. I am still present with you and I am for you. Because it's one thing to accept on a theological basis that God is. I believe all of us in the room believe that God exists. Or or even to believe that God is one. I think most of us in the room recognize that truth. But something different happens when we understand and we embrace that God is present with us. He's not watching over us from a distance, as the old song once said, but that he is Emmanuel, God, with us. Even the demons believe that God exists. But true transformation happens when we recognize and embrace the presence of God with us personally. I grew up in a home and in a church environment where it was very clear that God existed. In fact, our lives kind of revolved around the church. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. People often think I'm kidding, but I'm not when I tell you that my family for a while was the family that cleaned the toilets in the church bathrooms before church on Sunday. Like, we were always there. It wasn't hard to believe that there was a God who existed or that he was one. But transformation in my life personally began to come when I recognized that God was present in my life that he cared about the things that I care about, 
It was at 15 years old sitting across the table in EJ's Cafe in Sebring, Florida from my friend Matt who explained to me how he had had an encounter with Jesus that had changed his life and I knew where to find the life of Jesus and so I went to the Gospel of John, the very Gospel we're looking at today and over the next several weeks and I heard the words of Jesus, I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And for the first time, the the nearness, the presence of a God who was with me began to click. Began to answer questions about my identity, who I am, and what he had created me to do and to be. In other words, God is more than just the CEO of our universe. He's not the, the clockmaker that winds up the clock and walks away. He's intimately related about our details. He cares for you deeply and personally. That's why 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So that's what the I am means, that God is, that he is one, and that he is present. But let me ask a question. What in the world does all of that have to do with the argument in John chapter 8 between Jesus and these Pharisees? Let me seek to answer that question now. Because remember, what's happening is a discussion, a disagreement, if you will, about the identity of Jesus. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. They claim that he is not the Messiah. And though they reject the claim, they have to reckon with him because there's too many miracles, that the teachings are too powerful and authoritative. There's simply too many people who believe in him and love him. They cannot ignore him. And so the clash over the identity ensues and Jesus is about to up the ante. Look at John chapter 8, verses 54 through 58. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you yourselves say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he might see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If you've ever heard it claimed that Jesus did not uh, claim himself to be God, I would just push back that you haven't read the text closely enough. (laughs) Jesus says, before Abraham's existence, who by that point was 1,500 years prior, before Abraham existed, he doesn't just say, I was, he says what? I am. There was no uncertainty, no ambiguity about what Jesus was claiming, that before Abraham existed, he is, was, and always will be the I am that appeared to Abraham. That's why in verse 59 it says they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Remember that Jesus is, uh, or John rather, is writing for the purpose of establishing Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, One of the other gospel writers would tell an account of when Jesus was arrested. He asks the guards arresting him, among them Pharisees and religious leaders. He says, who are you seeking? They say Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, that the human man that was raised by Mary in the town of Nazareth. 
And in our uh, English translations, Jesus responds by saying, I am he. But in the original language, he simply says, I am. And the result is that they fall down to the ground as dead men. Jesus was again and again in explicit and sometimes implicit ways claiming to be equal with God himself. It is the reason they had him crucified, not because he was a great teacher, not even because he claimed to be Messiah, but they said in one place, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So remember, John is writing for that purpose, and that's why in John chapter 1, the very first verse, and then again in verse 14, he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John is presenting Jesus as the one who breathed our universe into existence. The very one who called Abraham and appointed him to be the father of a nation, the the very one who appeared to Moses and sent him to be the deliverer of the people of Israel, the same one who saved you, who knows you by name, who gave his life on a cross for you, who redeemed you, who called you, who lives inside of you by his spirit. This is Jesus. One of the things that as parents, Nikki and I seek to do is to expand our children's worldview to make it big enough for the world they're going to encounter. As a a pastor, as your pastor, one of the things I seek to do is to expand your understanding of who God is so it is big enough for the God that you will actually encounter. He's not trivial. He's not just the cosmic being that bails us out when we get in trouble. That God is holy, that his thoughts are higher than, his, than, than our thoughts, that his ways are higher than our ways. And so a couple of years ago in, in the summer, Nikki and I took our three kids. They were two years younger at the time, and, and we were doing an East Coast road trip, but went places we'd never been before, like Connecticut and New Hampshire and Rhode Island. And, and on that trip, we found ourselves in New York City, Times Square, and Nikki and I had been on two other occasions, and so kind of we'd absorbed what New York City is like. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with New York City, but it's a vibe. It's like a whole thing. And as we were walking the streets of Times Square, I wasn't cognizant of what my children were experiencing as they walked beside me. The culture shock that was taking place for these kids that are growing up in Summerport. (laughs) All of a sudden, I looked down at my then five-year-old son and he's crying. I stop and I get down and we're right on that busy you know, sidewalk. I said, I said, Jonah, what's wrong? And he's crying. He says, the buildings are just so big compared to me. <laughs> I want you to know that God is so big compared to you. And while he is your friend, while he lives within us, and while he cares about the the somewhat seemingly minute details of our lives, I want you from time to time to to look up, to see the God who is. This picture behind me I I took of of downtown New York City, you know, as as we're leaving on a boat. And it's one thing to look at the buildings, and they're beautiful, and you can tell they're large, but it's very different when you're standing among them. And God invites us not to look at him from a distance. Oh, that's, that's cool. Oh yeah, yeah, God's holy, yeah. 
but to be near to him. To recognize that the very one who breathed our universe into existence is present, is here with us now, and he is in us by faith in Jesus. The writer of Colossians says that all the fullness of deity in Christ lived in bodily form. And by faith in Jesus, he comes to live in us. That's who we're talking about. That's who Jesus is. As we prepare to close this part of the service, I want to ask you a question, and I want to give you a couple of minutes to to wrestle this out in your own mind. Where do you need the truth of God's presence in Jesus to bring you hope? We, We all have different situations going on, Maybe that place where you need God's presence is in an offense that you can't seem to let go of. And you need the gentle yet firm presence of God to simply pry your fingers loose off of that offense, however great, however small, to offer maybe for the first time forgiveness for the person who wronged you because you've been forgiven by the one who created you. Maybe you need God's presence in a situation that's causing so much tension and anxiety that you feel it in your body. You're losing sleep. You're getting physically sick because you can't let this go. Cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you and he will care for that issue. Or maybe some of you are caught in a temptation that is months, years, decades old. And you've pounded the steering wheel and you've prayed the prayers and you've begged God, release me, help me. And for whatever reason you feel that that prayer is not being answered, I can tell you personally, I have been there. I've wondered if it was ever possible to walk in freedom. I've wondered if I could ever get beyond this crippling sin in my life and I'm here to offer you great hope. The one who is, is present with you and he's strong enough to set you free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so what we're going to do in this next moment is we're going to walk through a verse, Psalm 46, verse 10, that simply says, be still and know that I am God. And we're going to do this as a a spiritual practice or a prayer exercise that's going to require some involvement. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to just where you are, would you close your eyes? And again, if you're comfortable doing this, would you Place your hands in front of you, palms up in a posture of receiving from God. In a few moments, we're going to invite you to stand and and sing a song of response, a song of worship, but we want to do this first. We want to first receive from the I am, to receive from God. And so I'm going to invite you to lock into your mind that situation, that offense, that temptation, that circumstance, whatever it is that's creating havoc and chaos in your life. And with open hands, would you release that to God? Would you allow the presence of God to take its place in and over your life? And would you pray in your own prayer this with me? Be still and know that I am God. In that place of pain, in that place of trouble, would you invite him and we say these words together, be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still.
B. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.